Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. This week, I got to speak with someone who has spent the majority of their career in the world of tech and fraud prevention, supporting the world's biggest banks and financial institutions. So basically, she was in a similar or the same industry and world as I've been, and probably as you are too. But over the last year or so, she started to pay more attention to the impacts of online fraud on the end use, the victims of fraud and scams. Whether they're targeted to have their credit card stolen and their funds will eventually be reimbursed, or if they'll be a victim of a credit card scam or authorized push payment scam, most consumer victims don't know how to protect themselves or what the signs of these scams are. Put simply, they don't know what they don't know. So my guest today, Ayala Bigger Levin, is now shifting gears and her focus in her career to merge her past experience with her empathy for scam victims. And today we had a really good conversation about several related topics. Ayala shared what the scam life cycle is and about the huge numbers of consumers that are targeted by scams every year. And we both talked about why isn't more done. I feel like there needs to be a federal law enforcement agency within the U.S. created to be dedicated to investigating and dismantling and prosecuting the perpetrators of online scams, of online fraud, of all of these pieces. It has definitely been bubbling up more and more, especially since 2020 and all the COVID-related fraud and everything that transpired after that with so many people learning that fraud can be extremely lucrative as well as not a lot of risks. And even though I had great guests last week from the Secret Service and Department of Homeland Security, and they're doing a lot for it, but it just seems like there needs to be a dedicated law enforcement agency created, similarly to how the Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11 in the U.S. It just feels like there's not one place to tell scam victims or there's not one website where scam victims can go to be educated on them or report it. And it just more and more, it seems like in addition to all the companies that also get scammed and ransomware and fraud and business email compromise and just all of this that so doesn't live in one area. But anyway, again, sorry, I'm that was a bit of a Carice tangent, but I think you're used to those by now. So Ayala and I also talked about why it's important for every company that can be leveraged by bad actors within the scam lifecycle to play their part in providing prevention, education, and behind-the-scenes detection to reduce the impact and the number of instances of their platform being exploited for fraud and scams to be committed. She also talked about how she believes that there's a crisis of trust in the digital realm and how banks and online merchants need to embrace and face this and the advantages for those that focus on building this trust with their users and the potential consequences if they don't. This is something that I talk about a fair amount on other episodes, but I really appreciated Ayala's 
perspective on this, especially because of all of her experience and some of which was in marketing. So she really understands just the importance of communication holistically all around and how companies can't just be stopping fraud behind the scenes. We need to be and, and working with our customers and users and have a process for when and if they do fall victim to a scam or fraud on your platform. And then we talked about how other fraud fighters can contribute some of their knowledge and domain expertise to help Ayala in the beginning stages of her new startup. And while she couldn't share a lot of the specifics publicly at this time, I know she'd really like to talk with anyone who has a passion to help victims of scams just to even pick your brain. And it's not just asking to you know, hire you or have you come on full board, but just you know to talk about it, especially those who have fought, been fraud fighters for any of the mobile carriers and telcos, financial institutions, companies that experience gift card fraud, or really if you just have any insights into how consumers can be alerted in a technological way that they may be a potential scam victim soon or right now. That's, you know, she'll talk more about that concept, but I really am passionate about helping her as much as possible because I think when we help one front fighter, we help all of them. And I'm sorry if that sounds really cheesy. It's just true. But also something I love about the guests of Fraudology is that they all have a passion for helping people. It's all in different ways and it's all with fraud prevention, detection, and recovery as the main focus. But we're all doing it in different ways and in every way is needed and is critically important. Especially, you know, I always am going to have a soft spot for education and collaboration throughout those areas. But everything, even those of you, I mean, especially those of you who work on the front lines and are doing it for one company or several, every one of us are important and we're only as good as the sum of our parts. So I really enjoy getting to share just some of the people that make up those parts on Tuesday episodes. It's one of my favorite things. So before we dive into the conversation, I want to give you just a little bit of Ayala's professional bio. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Ayala has held positions ranging from software engineer to software sales, technical product management. She was the senior manager of professional services for fraud and risk intelligence. That was at RSA. Product marketing. And she was even the SVP and head of global marketing for companies such as IBM, RSA and BioCatch. She started her career in Israel for IBM and RSA and then moved to New England in the U.S. to continue working for RSA and then BioCatch. Ayala also recently started a new podcast called Scam Rangers. This is a podcast that speaks to experts who have dedicated part of or all of their careers to helping the human victims of scams in different ways. Each expert talks about the scams they specialize in, helping consumers either prevent, detect, or recover from these scams, either over the phone, via email, or a third-party platform, such as you know, if they are contacted by a scammer on an online dating website, social media platform, encrypted messaging apps, etc. Each one of these guests shares a lot of details about the specific scams, and I've learned a lot by listening to this podcast. I shared it last week when I shared the seven other fraud podcasts that I highly recommend and that I subscribe to. But I really think that you will, if you haven't already subscribed to it, you will subscribe to Scam Rangers by the end of this episode of Fraudology. I really appreciate the different perspective and just really enjoy 
seeing other podcasts popping up and having different perspectives, especially from other women in the industry. That's you know my own favorite thing, but there's you know a lot of great ones. So I'm to be in the presence of other people who are passionate about sharing information about fraud and scams and all of that on this medium. So with that, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Ayelet Bigger Levin. I will talk to you more on Thursday. It's always fun for me to get to meet new people in the fraud fighting industry and fraudology gives me a really good excuse to do that. So Ayala, I'm so grateful that we've gotten to know each other and that you are joining me on Fraudology. It's great to be here and I'm excited as well. We've known several people in common and that's the way the fraud world works. But And we've definitely interacted with each other on LinkedIn. Uh, but when I saw that you had started your own podcast, I thought, oh my goodness, a kindred spirit. We have to... Now I have to get to know her better. Yeah, and I've been following your podcast for a long time now, and I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you so much. So in helping Fraudology listeners get to know you a little bit, what has your journey in fraud fighting been and where that will lead up to where you are now with your podcast and the other things that you're working on? Absolutely. So I've been in the technology space for over 20 years. My background is engineering. And for the last 15 years, I've been working for tech companies helping financial institutions fight fraud. So mostly focused on the banking space and focused on technologies that help protect online transactions, banking, and looking at account takeover, new account fraud. I've also worked in the identity side. So I worked for RSA Security for many years on both fraud and identity as a product manager and across several other roles. And then most recently, I worked for Biocatch. And Biocatch is also focused on fighting financial fraud with the robust platform with behavioral biometrics. So really interactive with financial institutions, understanding their challenges, their problems, what they're looking at, providing that balance between great customer experience, but also understanding the risk of the transactions and activities across the account. Well, and I, oh no, I think it's great to know that you started on the engineering side, because that means that you really understand the technology and that makes sense why you're working with RSA and then Biocatch, both of them very cutting edge technologies for banking in financial institutions, because obviously everyone wants to rob the piggy bank. You know, that's the easiest way. You don't have to fence any items. And then doing that and working with some of those service providers, you get to know so many different banks and so many different issues at a 10,000 foot view. And so I'd imagine that really helped you understand fraud from that level and seeing that you go a layer or two down and there's that human impact too. Absolutely. And I, although I started from engineering, I ultimately found myself in different roles. And one of the things that I realized I'm really passionate about is that combination of understanding the technology and the bits and bytes of the solution on one hand, and then understanding where customers of the financial institutions, problems, challenges, what their customers are facing, and creating a message that appeals to their challenges and how we and really understanding how we can help them and what we need to do to continue to help them and create that circle of feedback back and forth and also creating strategy, messaging, go to market, everything around that. So that kind of combines my two passions of communication and technology. Yeah, I think there's something about the story that sometimes gets lost in the technology. But mm -hmm. I think you've done a really good job of trying to find that balance. And I think that your background is so unique to be able to look at these problems in a unique way. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I realized while I was at Biocatch is that our customers have 
I've been working with financial institutions for you know the last 15 years and looking at their challenges, their goals, their metrics, their KPIs, been really focused on, you know, false positives, better risk awards, how do we do better, how do we fine tune our processes. And one thing that I realized that we're not thinking about enough is the victims, their customers. How does fraud impact their lives financially? And how does it impact their lives emotionally? That aspect is completely overlooked or not observed enough when we think about the daily routine tasks of checking the boxes, fulfilling the processes, the false positives, everything around risk scores. How do people feel and how does it impact their life on a daily basis? Because even if you look at you know the Senate hearings in a, a few months ago talking about reimbursement, yes or no, and all these metrics, the, the bank's response was, let's look at the fraud numbers. Fraud numbers, not much different than other banking rails. Hmm. Right. But the impact is very different. And the fact that it's not reimbursed is very different. So understanding how does it impact your customers is, is very important. And that's something that I really became passionate. So when I left Biocatch, I decided that this is going to be my mission. How do we help protect people from the impact of scams, both emotionally and financially, but not just financially. I think that's so important. And it's something that I've been diving into a little bit on previous episodes of Fraudology recently too, is the human impact of fraud. And I think that in some cases, we have to look at things as checking the boxes. In some cases, almost for our own self-preservation, right? Those of us who are empaths especially, where we have to look at the KPIs and the fraud numbers and the losses and the false positives and think of them like that. Because if we think about them as someone's grandmother who lost their life savings, we may not be able to function and think things through in a productized way of how can we solve this problem. But at the same time, sometimes we could also grow numb and not think about that enough. And I think that there's so much more emphasis on the human impact of fraud because of the types of scams that have been impacting humans, especially over the last two or three years in the US, as well as the UK and some parts of the EU. And it's something that those of us who, you, I think there's a lot more people in our industry who are trying to find that balance that you've also tried to find where, how can I continue to help my company and we're reaching the right levels and we're doing the right things, but then we're also thinking about that end user and that end customer and protecting them, whether it's in advance or giving them a sin or at least a path to follow when they need to report. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, 
need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. I think you mentioned a few really important points. One of them is the operational level, we absolutely need to continue to execute and hit the KPIs, the processes are there, the liability is there. Everything that people, fraud fighters are doing in their everyday lives is so important and the processes are there for a reason and they need to continue. At the same time, if we elevate the conversation to should companies do, what should chance e-commerce banks, everyone who has a touch point across the scam life cycle, I think that's where we need to rethink a little bit and think about what can we do differently, not on a tactical day-to-day basis, but mm. as an approach basis, it could be education, it could be technology to help, it could be helping with reinforcement, giving resources. There's so many things that can be done across the scam life cycle. I call it the scam life cycle because I'm talking about from the point where someone gets the first interaction with a scammer. It could be a text message, an email, it could be on social media, on a dating app, it could be a phone call. That starting point to the actual manipulation that could be one and done and it could take time like a Roman scam or investment scam. And then you have the point of financial transaction, which could be drawing money from an ATM to buy gift cards. It could be an ACH or wire transfer, a check, and it could be an electronic payment route. And then after the person realizes that they're scammed, if they report, which is low chances of that, but if they do report after they're feeling all these emotions of shame and embarrassment and how could I be so stupid, then you have calling the financial institution, law enforcement, FBI, trying to recover the money. So all these touch points, all the companies that are involved in these touch points, I think can think about how can they help their customers on the scam life cycle and what could they do better to protect their customers. Yeah, and I think something that we run up against all the time as fraud fighters is often we have a desire to want to educate customers even on something as simple as password safety and password hygiene, especially as there's so many more account takeovers and and this last pass breach definitely has me worried about a lot more account takeovers, not that we needed any more in the world, just something simple like that. And I know of a few companies that have done it very well, and they've actually seen their profits increase. However, the majority of communications and marketing teams worry that if a company or a bank even mentions that they know that they have fraud or they know that fraud is pull on their site, on their platform, for their customers, these communications teams often put a blocker in place and often don't even want to have their the director of fraud management speak at a conference or be on a website representing their company, much less providing tips and tricks to their customers. And I just feel like that's so backwards now because we're now in a world where people only do business with companies and other people that they like and that they trust. And how are they going to trust you if you're not helping them stay safe ahead of time, as well as if it does happen, giving them a clear path because, you know, you talk about, gosh, we can go back, we can go to the further end of the scam life cycle in a minute, or is how changing that is for those who do choose to report it to even know who to talk to. 
Absolutely. So I think it's really interesting to look at the UK. You mentioned the UK. They've been dealing with the scam problem long before we started here in the US. And yeah. the financial institutions, the government, many parties are really vocal about the risks and the scams. And they're vocal in a way that's engaging and is appropriate to their audience. So it could be fun commercials on TV, like a mentalist or rappers or just people who are involved and are applicable and can talk to their audience and will be appealing and are saying like, these risks exist, notice them, be careful. And I really applaud the fraud teams here in the U.S. and globally want to do, want to be more vocal, want to educate their customers, but are being blocked by the communications teams, like you mentioned. And I've seen that in the U.S., financial institutions and other some merchants are really hesitant about saying like there are risks here that you need to take into consideration because they don't necessarily want their brand to be associated with education about the risks. And as right. you mentioned, we're in a different era now. We're in a phase in time where people want honesty and they want trust. And mm-hmm. I also think we're in a phase where we're, we're going to approach a crisis in, in trust in the digital realm. And if financial institutions or merchants or other companies who are doing business with customers are not upfront with what's going on, then it will be a challenge for them moving forward because they need to protect their customers. And if we don't provide the proper education out there and the right controls and protection, at some point, customers will be worried about doing business. Now, just want to give kind of a simple math equation here. So the FBI Internet Crime Communication Center has received over 800, almost 850,000 reports for complaints about internet crime. So scams, email compromise, all different kinds of scams and, and, and reports from victims, right? Now, the U.S. population in 2021 was 331.9 million. That means that one out of 391 people in the U.S. reported to the FBI about a scam. Which honestly it doesn't, just with how much we read about, maybe it's because I'm immersed in fraud, doesn't seem like that many, right? It seems like, gosh, I would expect there to be a lot more. One out of 400 people, that's, I think that's... You know, know, if you divide it by households, you have 124 million households in the U.S., that's one out of 146 households. Now, imagine that we had real crime, physical crime. So one out of 146 households in your neighborhood is broken into. I would not want to live there, right? I would I would be crying to the police and to the state and to the government. What is going on here? That is what's happening. People's wallets, digital realities are broken into. Could be identity theft. It could be scams. All these things are really happening. So this is a crisis. Mm-hmm. Just because people are feeling shame, a lot of people don't know about it. Now, I talked about the people who actually reported. It's estimated that less than 70% actually do report the magnitudes of this problem. So it's more like my one point in, is in 40 houses, right? One in 30 houses is more like it to use your analogy. And I think that is a good point because at first I was like, the under thousand doesn't seem like that much. It is a lot. It's just maybe because we're all jaded to it. But I think the other part is who are these consumers expecting to tell them about it? Like they, they're just going about their lives. They're expecting their banks and the companies that they interact with to warn them if there's something going on, right? Like they're not thinking, oh, I need to proactively go somewhere to learn about it because there isn't just one place. So it's good. They also don't know what they don't know. Exactly. They just don't know. They right. don't know what's going on. And I want to say loud and clear, one email about Zell fraud not doesn't cut it. People ignore email. So <sighs> or that's, the, 
you yeah. check the box approach mm-hmm. and it needs to be in their face in a way across multiple platforms and it needs to be also in collaboration i don't I, again i don't want to say it's only financial institutions there are a lot of players across the scam life cycle oh, yeah. it could be the government it could be state it could be law enforcement there are a lot of ways to get to people but we need to educate people because again they don't know what they don't know and at some point they might be hit every person I talk to always gives me a story of someone they know who got scammed because oh, that's yeah. what I talk about all day long with everybody <laughs> I hear so many stories of people who got scammed and I several times almost fell for a scam and I'm an expert I consider myself an expert on this topic but it's tricky in one moment off guard it can happen to everyone and I think that notion of it can happen to everyone is not there and it should be because that reduces the shame a hundred percent yeah I agree with you the shame the shame cycle is definitely attached to the scam cycle in a way and that leads to under reporting and then that leads to so many other things and I think a challenge and one of the reasons why scams on Zelle and other peer-to-peer payment platforms are getting so much more attention, as well as crypto, uh, is that those are the realms where there isn't a liability assigned to one of the players within the ecosystem that's not the consumer. And the challenge is that consumers are used to there being someone else liable when they are scammed or when they're defrauded, partially because of the credit card laws, because of checks, you know, other things like that, right? Where either the bank takes the hit or the card not present merchant takes the hit or other things like that. And so they're not even educated on the fact of, hey, if you send money through this platform, that's on you. Your bank isn't going to pay you back. And I think that's honestly the first step, but that's not anything that the banks want to share. And I understand why. But at the same time, like you guys are over here so excited about how many accounts have been created and how many transfers have been done. Well, that growth is skewed by a lot of scams. Yeah, especially new account fraud, synthetic IDs and fake accounts on multiple platforms, definitely not just financial institutions, oh, yeah. Yeah, all across social media. So I think a few things, one of one thought that comes to mind after you describe the places where financial institutions and credit card issuers or merchants are liable is really all around unauthorized, right? Right. We don't do it. And there is a way to prove. And I think financial institutions, credit card issuers have become really good at identifying unauthorized transactions. And when someone is not committing or executing the transaction themselves, it's easy. You can follow process, investigate, find that out. And yes, there's a liability issue. But I I think that consumers don't even know what authorized versus unauthorized is and what it means. And that's a point where, as you said, they're expecting. But I think a lot of people don't even report and those who do will get, you know, really depends on the financial institution, by the way. I talk to a lot and there are very different approaches out there. Some will reimburse. Some will say, sorry, you did it. Your fault. Go. I'm not well, going to investigate. I'm not liable. Yeah. And to your point, like sometimes it also really varies based on the person, right? The account holder. Has the account holder had a lot of money in that institution? So once again, it's the people who don't have a lot who often are the ones who won't get reimbursed because they didn't give the bank lots of business for 20 years. And I get it, right? I have to be in those conversations with clients and and I've had to be in them and you've had to be in them from an operational standpoint. You can't just bail everyone out. But yeah, that's a tricky point because you also can't you can't prefer someone who has a lot of money in the bank. So they need to put the right controls and processes into oh, their reimbursement policies have to be agnostic and uh, and proper. Yes. (laughs) But it is a problem of 
also of attrition that needs to be considered because if someone, you know, the bank is not always liable, but if someone is scammed and loses money and a few things, I think we need to take their emotional impact and into consideration when we communicate with them, when they call our customer support center or complain, yes. that's where we have to, if we change like one thing, it has to be the empathy. I know a lot of financial institutions are doing it really well. Also seen in the UK, special units that deal with these victims that are trained on empathy and investigation, and they put a lot in there. So that's number one. And then number two is, okay, we're not going to reimburse them. How can we still support them? And understand that a lot of customers will leave the financial institution. That's not going to help them, not because they're liable, but because they also feel shame. They feel mm -hmm. shame that it happened to them. They feel like they did something wrong. They don't feel like their bank really protected them or supported them. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be reimbursement. But there are a lot of mm -hmm. things that financial institutions and merchants can do. And I actually chatted with someone from Amazon who told me a lot about what they're going to do. She'll be on one of the episodes of Scam Rangers. And she talks about what they're doing. And they're, what they're doing is really interesting because the Amazon scams, which are all over, they're brand abuse for them. So yep. it's not like it's not happening on a platform, but they're right. still doing a lot to yep. try to educate, try to work with law enforcement collaboration. So there are things that can be done by organizations beyond just reimbursement. I think that's the one. That, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say, but one side of me is hoping for liability for reimbursement because once regulatory requirements are in, I see that financial institutions develop the technology that is required to stop this. And with the lack of liability, it's not going to happen as much because it, there, it needs to be tied to a business goal and a financial goal. And I would hope that we can find some, and I understand a lot of financial institutions are saying, why should we reimburse a customer for something that they did mistakenly? It's not our fault. It's a slippery slope, first party fraud can rise, just like we saw yeah. on the credit card side, but a lot of valid points. So if we would have some liability or some policy regulatory driven that can force or mandate institutions to do more without necessarily reimbursing, that would be great middle grounds for regulation. A hundred percent. And I think that's what we're both kind of talking about the same things where there's really two parts of it from a communications and really from a relationship standpoint, right? It can't just be a one way. It needs to be a two way with your customers. And one is on the prevention side, the education side, the fact that consumers don't know that the Social Security Administration will never call you and ask you for gift cards, right? The IRS will never, I mean, I think I've told this in a previous episode, but a very close family member to mine a few years ago I said, well, you told me that the IRS would never call and ask me for any information, but you never told me that the Secret Service agency wouldn't call. So, or the, so not Secret Service, sorry. I just had them on the podcast last week. The Social Security Administration wouldn't call. And like so a different agency. For my, yeah, a different agency within the, you know, so they called and asked for my Social Security number and I gave it to them. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I failed you as a family member. But, you know, gosh, I guess I should have said no. It's one of those challenges. But it, that's one of the right. challenges of education, too, because yes, they'll just you can educate this. all you want. And it's I'm, I'm a big advocate for education. I think it's very important, but it's not enough. It's not going right. to solve this problem. No. And that's why it has to be multilayered. Yeah. And that's exactly where I was getting at. Right. I think 
A, we need to be able to knock down the barriers internally to say, hey, we can't act like this doesn't happen. We can't have the fraud team behind the scenes only doing controls behind the scenes or mopping things up after a scam has happened. We need to be communicating either through different agencies and nonprofits. Like I know you had Kathy Stokes from the AARP on Scam Rangers, the first one. They do a lot of great work. Other organizations do too. But I think the problem is when consumers are liable for fraud, they aren't banding together. They can't band together the way that banks will or e-commerce companies will or other financial institutions will to learn from each other, to understand what's out there, to share information, et cetera. And right now it's very disparate depending on what you listen to and how, as well as it's up to those on the prevention side, it's up to those institutions to provide the education and the communication in a way that will be consumed. Because to your point, the check the box communication, I mean, there's been a campaign on a few of the podcasts I've listened to recently of Zell. And I'm sorry we're picking on Zell, but then again, like it's in the news and it's out there and it's a very topical topic for financial institutions, you know, saying these are the three things to do to not get scammed. First, I'm like, okay, so if I do those three things, I won't get scammed at all. But second of all, they don't say the why. They just say, don't send money to someone you don't know. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, what if I sell something on, you know, a marketplace? Well, that's something, something, you know, like there's just, there's no why there. There's no story impact. There's no emotional. I'm not going to remember those tips. And then in fact, I do this for a living and I don't even remember what three tips they gave. And I've listened to that commercial several times with different podcasts I was new. But then, you know, on the flip side, to your point, there also needs to be action by the institutions to invest in the technology because we know it exists. We know it exists from the e-commerce side. We know it exists from the issuing side of being able to identify those things and being able to identify customer behavior, right? This is a brand new account and they're now transferring $500 using a peer-to-peer money transfer to an account that they don't have the phone number saved in their phone. Maybe we should do a little extra digging. Things like that. I know that at least one peer-to-peer money transfer company has done. You need to enter the last four digits of the phone number of the person receiving the money. That's great. But then, you know, scammers work that into their phone call and say, oh, if they say that, just here's the number you put in. Don't worry about it. That's for other people's scams, etc. But then I think lastly, really having that support. And I kind of want to dive into that a little bit more as far as when, because first we need to take the stigma and the shame out of it, right? If we're talking about scams, then people know that they happen and then they don't feel as bad. That's partially another side effect of the education. It's a side of trust, right? Oh, my bank gives me tips on, you know, I know local banks and credit unions seem to be a lot more focused on educating their customers. And I have heard just anecdotally from people in my life who have said, oh, I switched to this credit union from a big bank because they share a lot of tips on fraud or they keep help. They at least help them feel like they're safe and they care about those things. And then, you know, lastly, it's okay when they do get scammed, how do we treat them? Absolutely. And think about just in the last 20 years, how many topics have come to the press or to top of mind in media and now we feel safer to talk about them? If it's mm. racial, it's gender, it's yeah, so many things that it's both those that I mentioned, like the Me Too movement and other things, but also suicide and trafficking, so many things that are happening in the world. And mm. let's not hide that. Let's talk about it in a number way that's appropriate and protects people and is, is with empathy that, that's meant to raise a topic, not to scare. We don't want to scare people, but it's reality, right? So we need to give them tools to deal with it. And I always talk about 
giving phones to kids, right? We give them a phone and we say, here you go. And then it's like giving them a car without taking a driver's test, right? So we need to be very, very careful. And now we have, due to the pandemic, all these new populations that were never tech savvy or online, like the elderly, like kids, like Gen Z, that are getting into digital banking and digital money-related activities and don't have the proper education, don't have the savviness. And we talk about Zelle a lot in P2P, but it's not just Zelle. I think the conversation today in the U.S. about liability stems from the sharp rise in scams in Zelle. But it's happening across many payment rails. It's Cash App. It could be wire transfer. It could be a branch transfer. It's gift gift cards. It's everything. Yeah, so I think we need to think not that narrow focus on P2B and Zell. It needs to be broad. How can we help people? And what is our responsibility as an institution or an organization that has a touch point across the scam life cycle? By the way, the gift card retail association, retail gift card association, sorry, is also looking at this problem. And I know they've been in touch with the Noble and trying to have conversations. They care a lot about this problem, although from their perspective, it's a tool, but they don't want this is not good reputation for gift cards either. No. Yeah, it's not. And I think we think about that's something I'll often talk about with clients if they're like, we worry about friction or we worry about scaring people with that. It's like, you know, think about a company that you recently, and I'll sometimes name them. I won't name them on the episode, but do you remember seeing headlines about X company? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was honestly, it was credential stuffing. That happens to you all the time, but that company got blown up for it and it got synonymous with, you know, not being secure. With basically with data, you know, with hacking, right? Hacking your accounts, data breaches, even though that merchant, it was credential stuffing. That happens on every single company. So if you're, when it comes your company's turn to be in that headline, if it does, A, my first goal is to have it not happen, but these are the ways that we have to do it, right? By putting some different layers in place. Hopefully it's not a ton of friction, but you have different layers in place to understand who's making the purchase to protect your current customers and potential customers. And then it's also, if that does become the headline, what are you going to do? You know, we need to not do that. So maybe that's one way that you can help your communications team understand the importance of being transparent and open and then not saying, oh, this happens to us all the time, but more similar to what you're saying about erasing the stigma for all challenges in society. I think that's a really good example. And then, you know, lastly, as far as making sure that there is a standard operating procedure for when people do contact your company. If you were one of those touch points within the scam life cycle, how are you taking care of them? Maybe you can't reimburse them, but maybe their support. I think that's such a good talking point and such a good something, you know, it's really something to highlight on because I don't think that we as front fighters or just even tech organizations think about that as much. You know, we think about the consumer's responsibility to us or we think about mm-hmm. so much about getting them to our platform and customer acquisition costs and all of that. But what about keeping them there, right? If their account is taken over or if they send money somewhere and it is authorized by them, but they buy gift cards on your site or something like that and you didn't say, hey, this could happen, they'll blame you at the end of the day, whether you think it's rational or not. Especially even for gift cards. Let's say I go to CVS and I buy gift cards. And by the way, a lot of merchants have implemented controls, security controls saying like alert. I saw little notes at the beginning and then it was at the point of sale, but alerting people that there are these scams out there. But let's say I just go and buy 
Google Play gift cards, right? And I'm scammed. So there is that subliminal association that happens because it was Google Play. It just happened to be that's what the scammer asked for, but it could be anything. But it's impacting the brand and something to consider. Another point that I want organizations to consider is maybe start with vulnerable populations. Now, I'm not saying that, and research has shown that all populations are equal, equally targeted by scammers for different types of scams. So you have the elderly for the grandparent scam or could be romance scams. You have the younger populations for mule accounts, identity phishing. It really, there is a scam for every age that's working well, unfortunately. But maybe organizations, if it's hard to consume the one size fits all, let's solve this problem, maybe start with vulnerable populations. Could be the elderly, could be people with vulnerable vulnerabilities that are that are customers of yours and their stated vulnerabilities that you can help them in particular. And I think even starting small and testing it out as a strategy and then growing the controls and helping them out could be a good idea. I know that my parents call me a lot to ask about messages and most everyone I talk to about this topic is, shares that. Like, uh, yeah, I would get a control or a protection for my parents if I had that because they call me all the time. And the good thing is that they call them because imagine if they didn't. Yeah, I have to remind myself of that when my mother sends me continual screenshots of, is this a scam? Is this a scam? I kind of want to say, if you're asking, it is. I agree 100%, by the way. If people ask, they're 90% there because they suspect. The problem is with those who don't because they immediately... Or they don't know who to ask. They don't have somebody in their life. They're not thinking about asking. It's not only that they don't even know who to ask. They're not thinking about it. They're immediately under that emotional impact, frightening that their account's going to be locked, that their account's going to be charged, something really bad is going to happen to someone they love. All these manipulations ignite that emotional part really quickly. Yeah, gosh. So I think we've had some good conversations as far as everyone's responsibility within this scam life cycle. And it's interesting how you you yourself started out you know, on protecting the banking side and realizing that there's also, you know, that end user that also needs to be protected and who's working with them, who's protecting them. Where if any, if people listening to Fraudology remember just one or two things that you've said today, what do you hope that they walk away with? So the first thing is really thinking beyond the day-to-day and thinking about the human side of fraud and the impact, the emotional and financial impact on a person who's sitting there on the other side of the scam and how can we help them more? And thinking about what we could do on the fraud life cycle from that very first text or call all the way to trying to seize those funds back and get them back. What can we do? What can I do with my organization to help and do more than I'm doing today? Those are impactful. And then the last thing I would ask you is how can listeners help you in that? I mean, you have taken some time off from the corporate world, so to speak, just for a little bit and, you know, really diving into this passion of yours and thinking about what that looks like. Uh, So how can people who are listening to Fraudology and thinking, I do want to help, but I just don't know how, you know, whether that's reaching out to you or if there's another organization you recommend, um, how can they help and get involved? So first of all, yeah, absolutely. Feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me through LinkedIn, Nayanet Bigger 11. And I'm very passionate about this and taking action. So one thing is the podcast, Scam Rangers. 
And the other thing is I'm starting a company to fight this topic and really put a dent in the in, in scams. So we just started and we're working on technology that will take a place in the scam life cycle before people are emotionally entangled with a scam. That's the idea. So if people are interested, happy to connect with people, we're starting fundraising and we're on the way and we're getting out there. If you're interested to hear more or you want to help, definitely feel free to reach out to me. And uh, finally, there are a lot of organizations, I think, out there that are nonprofits that are trying to connect financial institutions, merchants, anyone in the industry who can get involved and help, definitely government. And there are a number out there. There's the Global Anti-Scam Alliance. There's the Noble. There are a lot out there. I, I hope they all work together eventually to connect mm. the dots and not <laughs> everyone siloed, but at least both of those are getting a lot of good traction and, and making right connections. So one is in Europe and one is here in the US. So those organizations are really starting to make. And definitely had Ian Mitchell and Terry Schlappert from The Noble on Fraudology previously. And so people that listen regularly are familiar with them. And I think that there's just something to be said about fraud fighter collaboration because I don't think that fraud fighters understand how much knowledge they have each individual person. You know, there might be a fraud fighter who works for a telco that would have really unique information about, you know, how text messages get to people or what signals could be or what, you know, those type of things versus or a fraud fighter that works for a bank or a crypto company is going to have different information than a fraud fighter that works for an e-commerce company or a big name retailer that is often targeted for gift cards. They all have their unique perspective on this issue and I think can help behind the scenes in just even suggesting, oh, have you thought about this, that this technology exists, or have you thought about this method? And so that's... Yeah, you know, I'd be absolutely happy to talk to fraud teams at financial institutions and telcos who are looking for solutions in this space and chat about what would really help them from their perspective solve this problem. I appreciate your time so much. I appreciate your heart and adding some emphasis to this. I think that Often, you know, we can get very operational about it as we talked about at the beginning and sometimes we have to, but then I think we also have to remember the consumers as well as our customers. And when we have that focus on the customer impact, they're going to have a great experience overall and you'll protect them. And, you know, the, I believe that they're all combined. And I think that's, you know, really what you and I both have been talking about today. Right. And definitely embrace your customers and embrace reality. And let's walk with them together. And that's how we create trust. And that's where relationship stems from. Well said. Thank you again so much, Ayala, for your time. And I will absolutely put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so people can connect with you directly, as well as a link to Scam Rangers. So thanks again so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and love chatting with you. And thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.